Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to History Becomes Her, a mashable podcast about women making history right now and the women who paved the way for them. Who inspires the women shaping the world we live in? Women whose names will one day be read in history books by future generations of women seeking inspiration. I'm your host, Rachel Thompson, senior reporter at Mashable. Each episode, I speak to history-making women about the challenges they face bringing about change, where they found the determination to stand up for what they believe in, and the women of the past and present they look to for inspiration women they admire, and women who we could all learn something from. They're activists. I'm Diane Mundy. I was one of the prime people who achieved the 1967 Abortion Act. Journalists. My name is Charlie Brinkhurst-Cuff. I am the head of editorial at Galden. Authors. My name is Lisa Tadeo, and I am a writer. Campaigners. Caroline Criado perez I am a feminist campaigner. Women who've changed the law. My name is Gina Martin. I'm most well known for making upskirting a sexual offence in England and Wales and changing the law without any political legal experience. And women who vow to fight for change until their last breath. Before we start, there is discussion of rape and sexual assault in this episode. My first guests are women who changed the world with a single story. In 2017, two reporters at the New York Times broke the Harvey Weinstein investigation, which helped spark a global movement. These reporters are Megan Tuohy, investigative reporter with the New York Times, co-author of She Said. Jody Cantor, uh, investigative reporter at the New York Times, co-author of She Said. On the 5th of October 2017, they hit publish on the meticulously reported story with little idea of the impact it would go on to have. Just days before, Tuohy and Cantor had worked till midnight on the story, shared a taxi home and turned to each other. Is anybody going to care? They asked themselves. The answer to that question, it turns out, was an unequivocal and resounding yes. Their inboxes were flooded with emails with more allegations of Weinstein's sexual misconduct. Within days, the MeToo hashtag, a movement started a decade earlier by civil rights activist Tarana Burke, went viral. Social media feeds were inundated with experiences of sexual assault and harassment. This was a moment in history that became a movement. A movement that two years on is still dominating conversations. So this is a podcast about women who are making history now, but it also reflects on the women of the past who paved the way and the women who inspired them. I consider you both women who've helped change the world. Um, Who are the women who inspire you? And is there a particular activist or journalist from history, even from the present day, who's had an effect on your, your life? Our book, she said, is a kind of invitation into the Harvey Weinstein investigation because people think they know this story. And there was a lot of drama that played out 
out on the pages of newspapers when we broke it. However, there is so much drama behind the story. And, you know, we're trying to take you along the journey because the events of Me Too have come to mean so much to so many people, you know, to take you into those first hushed conversations with actresses, into the final confrontations with Weinstein in our offices at the New York Times. And I think one thing people will discover is that even though there's this sort of perception that two women broke the Harvey Weinstein story, it was really three women. Rebecca Corbett is our editor um, at the New York Times. She's in charge of the investigations department. She's sort of been a silent hero of newspaper journalism in the United States for decades. And it's been a pleasure to kind of pull the curtain back on just what a tremendous woman and tremendous editor she is. Uh, whether it was pushing us to go beyond uh, to make sure that every step of the way in, in our investigation that we were kind of going beyond trying to find evidence of, you know, the alleged predation of Harvey Weinstein, considering the larger questions of the sort of systemic failures and the other types of kind of machinery that was in place to allow somebody like Harvey Weinstein to get away with his decades of alleged predation to basically working through the night on deadline as we were preparing to publish. There's a scene in which Rebecca Corbett works through the night taking only a 45-minute nap at her desk to make sure that every single word in um, our story was absolutely right, and it, which is which is really something that she just does can be found doing, um, you know, week in and week out at the New York Times as she kind of keeps vigil over the most important investigations coming out of the newspaper. You know, I think there are people in the media whose, you know, names appear in bold face or, or who appear on TV a lot, but they don't necessarily move the culture. Rebecca Corbett is almost completely unknown until the Weinstein story. I don't think her name even surfaced much in Google search results. But over and over again, behind the scenes at newspapers, by championing and driving these key stories, and by showing a particular kind of ambition, not ambition for herself, but journalistic ambition, she has had more impact than almost any woman in journalism I can think of. Jody, in the early stages of the investigation, you spoke to former employees of Harvey Weinstein who told you his behavior was an open secret in Hollywood and that no one would care even if you did get the story. Was there an attitude, do you think, that this was a man of such immense power that people would just look the other way and that nothing could possibly change in the culture? Yes, and also that this behavior was completely accepted. I, I will try to recreate for you some of the condescending lectures we got from Hollywood executives early in the reporting. They would say, oh, Jody, oh, Megan, you know, you're never going to get your little story. They treated us as if we were very naive. Uh, and they said, but even if you do, they said, let me explain our industry to you. You know, you guys, you're not entertainment reporters. You don't really know much about this. They'd say the casting couch is just part of Hollywood. It has been uh, from the beginning. You know, it's an unfortunate part of our industry, but it's really intertwined with what we do because there are all these beautiful young actresses and all of these, you know, sort of older male producers. And look, you know, they had some evidence. There was an actual casting couch sculpture wow. in Hollywood. You know, those famous Chinese theaters where they have the movie premieres. There, there was a real 
sculpture of a casting couch, which I think sort of showed how, how normalized it was in the industry. And they would just end the conversation by saying, look, everybody knows he does this. It's an open secret. And even if you get the story, nobody's going to care and nothing will change. You mentioned that a few nights before the story was published, you'd both been working till midnight and you'd asked each other, is anybody going to care and is anybody going to read? Um, Did you have any inkling um, that the story would have such a huge impact and that it would help spark a global movement? Well, you're absolutely right. There were about two nights before we published the story, uh, Jody and I uh, shared a taxi back from the New York Times headquarters in uh, Midtown Manhattan to our apartments in Brooklyn. We live about 10 blocks from each other. And as we were kind of rushing through the city streets um, in the hush of the cab, we actually turned to each other and said, you know, do you think anybody's going to read this story? We had been working so hard for so many months um, to basically get to the point where we did have a story that we could publish. We had been scaling all these various hurdles that we had encountered along the way. And in those final days, we're working obsessively to make sure that everything in the story was airtight mm-hmm. uh, and and to make sure that our sources and everybody else was kind of protected um, as Harvey Weinstein was coming at us with all of these underhanded tactics and high-priced lawyers to try to kill the story in those final hours. That we were so focused on that that we really didn't take much time to contemplate what would happen afterwards. But it was really within days of that first story being published, that we could feel that something really significant was starting to happen. First of all, our emails and phones were flooded with women who were reaching out to tell us their own stories of harassment and abuse, not just about Harvey Weinstein. These were women who were coming to us with other stories of harassment and abuse. And we weren't the only ones. I mean, those calls were starting to flood news organizations across the United States and ultimately around the world. And you weren't entirely convinced at the outset. I read in the book that you say the prime mission of journalism was to give voice to the voiceless and and to those who were often ignored. And movie stars with their fame and fortune were far from that. And I I wanted to know what changed your mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, Jody had started the Harvey Weinstein investigation while I was on maternity leave from the newspaper. So we had had a pretty important phone call while I was on maternity leave. You know, Jody had just called to explain that she had was working on this an investigation because I had done reporting on victims of sex crimes and actually some of the women who had come forward with allegations of sexual misconduct against then candidate Donald Trump Mm. in 2016. uh, I had had experience uh, kind of making phone calls and knocking on the doors of of, of victims and, and some experience in talking to them. So she was just asking some advice on what to say in those first 30 seconds if you get somebody on on the phone. Uh, But, you know, and so I was certainly intrigued by what she was doing. But when I came back, our editor, Rebecca Corbett, presented me with options. She said, you can go back to covering Donald Trump or you can join Jody on the Harvey Weinstein investigation. And I said, can I take a day to think about it? Uh, because you know, I had colleagues who were saying, listen, Donald Trump's the story of a lifetime. You'd be crazy to, to go cover some sleazy Hollywood producer. But I had also watched as in- investigative journalism seemed to like actually not be making much of a difference when it came to covering Trump. 
But I also did have some reservations about the Harvey Weinstein investigation at that point. I did have a hard time conceiving of people like Gwyneth Paltrow as uh, victims in need of help of the New York Times. Uh, but Jody actually convinced me, you know, she said, listen, if women like Gwyneth Paltrow and Ashley Judd have been victims of sexual harassment, it really suggests that nobody is immune. And if we can help bring this to light, we might actually be able to help make a difference. And in the book, you say that during your first phone call together, you talked about, you know, what to say in the very first few seconds of a phone call with a with a victim. And, and that sentence is, I can't change what happened to you in the past, but together we may be able to use your experience to help protect other people. Why do you think that sentence in particular is so effective in convincing survivors to speak out? Well, first of all, we should acknowledge that it definitely did not work every time. You know, I know... Looking back at this, the, the headline is how many women did come forward, but we have to tell you it was hard. It was hard. So many people wouldn't return our calls, would speak to us for a moment and then hang up. There are women who have still not come forward about Weinstein, but that argument is the best argument that we know. And I think it's because it's about something that's bigger than yourself and about helping other people. We acknowledge that there are so many reasons not to come forward. It's really unfair that women have to do this work of coming forward because the women we wrote about did nothing to get harassed mm-hmm. or assaulted. They, they were, you know, they were trying to go to work. They were. Rachel Crooks, who Megan reported a story about, she has a story of being forcibly kissed by Donald Trump. She was waiting by an elevator in her office when it happened. It's really unfair in some ways that women have to go through this painful, messy process of potentially coming forward. But what we always believed is that it can have impact on other people. And we try to, a lot of people think that talking to a journalist is a bad thing to do, that it's tattletale or that it's traitorous or that you sound like a complainer. And part of what we're trying to do with that argument is redefine it as uh, something good to do, something noble to do, a kind of act of public service. And we were saying to people, look, when you've been through a painful experience like this, it's so hard to cope with. But one thing you can do that can be very empowering is you can sort of take your pain and donate it to the public good. And it may be that on the other side of the process, it becomes something that you can feel proud of. That's beautifully put. And during your reporting, women shared their accounts and and knowledge with you at immense personal and professional risk. How central were these women to your investigation? And do you think we as a society owe them a debt of gratitude for effectively speaking up on behalf of women? First of all, you know, there there are so many surprising figures in this book. Some of the people who helped bring the truth to light, like Gwyneth Paltrow, for example, who had been one of our, you know, most important secret sources, even though she didn't ultimately go on the record in the first story. Nobody's known that until now. So we're able to to show readers uh, all of the various things that she did. And you know, but we also get to show the kind of gut-wrenching decisions and the backstories of some of the women who did ultimately go on the record, like Ashley Judd, who really put her career on the line um, uh, to, to be the first actress to go on the record. People are very familiar with the movies that she's been in over the years, but we'll learn that she actually, even prior to the Harvey Weinstein investigation, had cultivated a real interest and commitment to gender inequality uh, that played into this factor. And ultimately, hers was somewhat of a serene decision 
happen. But there also are, you know, these, you know, the, there, there were sort of two categories of alleged victims, the actresses, and then also young women who had gone to work for Harvey Weinstein uh, at his company, sometimes their first jobs, oftentimes their first jobs out of college with all of these ambitions to work behind the scenes in the entertainment industry, um, only to see Harvey Weinstein sort of uh, prey on those ambitions um, with his predatory behavior. And so there were actually, in, in, in some of the women that that spoke to us, and in fact, the very first woman to go on the record um, is uh, Laura Madden, who uh, lives in Wales. You know, she was somebody who is a mother at the time, was a stay-at-home mother, um, who was actually going through a really rocky time. She was in the process of separating from her husband. She had suffered breast cancer. Um, and yet she she went where no other woman, you know, was, was prepared to go in the course of the investigation uh, in terms of deciding to go on the record. She has teenage daughters and she gathered them and for the very first time told them about her experience with Weinstein and that she was preparing, that she had been working with the New York Times on this story. And as she tells it, it was actually an extremely motivating experience that these teenage daughters of hers actually started opening up about their own experiences and the experiences of their friends and were extremely proud of her um, and felt like that this was something that was really important for her. Um, and so, you know, right before we were within days of publishing our first story, she sent us an email in which she basically said, you know, I feel compelled to speak out and I don't want my daughters to be living in a world um, of this type of bullying behavior. I'm prepared to go on the record for your story. That's incredible. I read that she was due to have a surgery, post-cancer surgery, and the date of that surgery was basically going to collide with your publication date mm. as well. It was a terrible situation. Um, Laura, for a while, before Ashley Judd went on the record, was really our one woman on the record. And we had other forms of on-the-record evidence. So it was a very strong story built of, you know, documents and the legal and financial trail and company memos and whatnot. But in terms of interviews, I mean, getting victims to give on the record interviews was really, really hard. So Laura was alone and she was wavering a little bit. She was nervous, understandably so. And then we realized with horror that she had this kind of looming surgery coming up on the calendar. She had had breast cancer already and she needed a second mistake and she needed reconstructive surgery. And we realized to our mutual horror that that surgery date was basically going to collide with the publication of the story. And Megan and I felt terrible. We thought, how can we ask her to do this? This is too much. I mean, asking her to be the lone woman on the record to begin with is such a heavy request. And then as she's going under the knife for this really serious, very personal surgery. You know, we felt terrible, but we couldn't afford to lose her because we really didn't have anybody else at that time. And so in the intervening time, Ashley Judd did go on the record. But as Megan just said, Laura stayed true. She had that conversation with her daughters. It was very motivating for her. And, you know, one thing we did in this book is we included a lot of the original texts and emails and documents and exchanges and transcripts because we want you to see this material for yourself. We want you to feel like you were there. And so I would urge everybody to go back and read that note that Laura composed that actually landed in our inboxes just a few hours before the story was published. I think it says something like, I've been through life-changing health issues. I know that 
time is precious and confronting bullies is important. I'm happy to go on record. One of the crucial pieces of evidence was a memo written by uh, Lauren O'Connor, who previously worked for Weinstein's Miramax film production company. In that memo, which she sent to HR, she wrote, I am a 28-year-old woman trying to make a living and a career. Harvey Weinstein is a 64-year-old world-famous man, and this is his company. The balance of power is me, zero, Harvey Weinstein, 10. Can you tell me about what this piece of evidence showed? You're, you're referring to a memo that was actually given to us by another one of our secret sources um, who might come as a surprise to listeners. Um, Erwin Ryder uh, was a longtime uh, accountant within Harvey Weinstein's companies, first Miramax and then the Weinstein Company. He actually uh, agreed to become a secret source and ultimately slipped us an internal company record This that had been written by Lauren O'Connor. She had been a junior executive in the company in 2015 when she wrote this really blistering memo in which she spelled out all of the alleged sexual harassment and other abusive behavior that she was witnessing by Harvey Weinstein. She was sort of brave enough to do what so few other people, uh, you know, who had gotten glimpses of the problem ever did. Mm -hmm. And so when we when we when we obtained that memo and started reading through it, uh, we were it was extremely significant. This was somebody at that point we had been documenting uh, decades of alleged predation. And here was somebody basically describing it from the inside of the company um, as as recently as 2015. Uh, So once we obtained that, we realized that basically the stakes of the Weinstein investigation uh, increased uh, substantially. I mean, we thought that we were kind of documenting things that had happened uh, long ago. And what we realized was that if we didn't you know, if we didn't publish the truth that Weinstein could very likely go on to, you know, hurt other women, other employees within his own company. And during the latter stages of your investigation, Weinstein used a number of intimidation tactics to attempt to prevent the story's publication and ultimately silence his accusers. Can you tell me a little bit about what he did to prevent you from running or to try and prevent you from running the story? Sure. One day in the summer of 2017, I got this email from this woman who said her name was Diane. Philip, and she claimed to be a British women's rights advocate. She wanted to meet with me to uh, get me to participate in some conference. She seemed to be offering to pay money. And I just didn't have time to meet with her. I mean, Megan and I were working on the Harvey Weinstein investigation, and we had very young children at home. We still do. And, you know, we kind of had this attitude of like, we've got to get the story, and then we've got to get home to the kids. So I blew her off. Little did I know that she was actually an agent of Black Cube. Black Cube is an Israeli intelligence agency. It consists of sort of um, ex-government spies, um, and they now work for hire for businesses. And what they were trying to do was dupe and manipulate us and our sources on Weinstein's behalf. Um, There was actually a bounty out uh, on our story, which we didn't know at the time. Uh, They had signed a contract that said that if they could stop the publication of our story, Weinstein would pay them $300,000. And so uh, there was this sort of, you know, massive, manipulative, underhanded effort 
uh, to stop our story, but that was only part of it. There was a whole team of high-priced PR people, lawyers, including um, uh two really prominent feminist attorneys, Lisa Bloom, who, you know, was sort of a familiar TV face in America. She was a really famous victim's rights attorney, Gloria Allred's daughter, you know, always talking about protecting women, et cetera, et cetera. She crossed lines to work for Harvey Weinstein. And in fact, you know, for the book, Megan was able to obtain and we were able to reprint her job audition memo for Harvey Weinstein. And it's a really chilling document because because she's saying, I'm going to use my credibility as a women's rights advocate instead to help you. And I'm willing to smear on your behalf and I'm willing to manipulate on your behalf. I mean, he even showed up at the the New York Times office, like I think it was a, a day before publication. Mm-hmm. How did that feel? Well, we had been really, we had been really sort of precise in how we dealt with mm-hmm. Weinstein as we were reporting on him and as we were preparing to publish our story. We suspected that he was using a variety of tactics to try to stop us. Um, we didn't at the time realize that he had employed these uh, former Israeli uh, private intelligence <laughs> officials mm-hmm. to seek to manipulate us and our sources. But we knew that he um, was capable of and likely to be employing a variety of kind of underhanded tactics. So we had, in the course of our investigation, refused to talk to him off the record and at the end had basically provided him with 48 hours to respond to our findings. We went to him two days before we were preparing to publish and said, this is everything that we're uh, intending to to write. And, you know, this is what you do. This is part of the final stage of the due diligence you do with these types of investigations to make sure that the subject has adequate time to respond and offer comment. You do that in the name of fairness. You also do that in the name of accuracy. And that really set off a wild ride of a 48 hours where Weinstein was coming at us with, you know, everything he had to try to stop us, including the day before we published, uh, we got a call from one of his PR people saying, Harvey Weinstein's on his way to the New York Times right now. And we turned to each other and said, like, what, excuse, excuse, I'm sorry, excuse us. Can you repeat that? Um, um, you know, he, he's on his way to the New York Times uninvited. Uh, and and sure, you know, are we going to let him in? And, and, and sort of sure enough, he barged into the New York Times with some of these high priced lawyers by his side. Um, uh, you know, we ended up taking the, um, the meeting. We gave him we said, OK, you've got 15 minutes. And uh, what he what he did is he'd come with these folders of information, um, photographs of some of the women that were going to be in the story with allegations against him, mm-hmm. uh, photos of them. Uh, posed with Harvey Weinstein on red carpets and other uh, sort of public events um, uh, in the years following their alleged incidents, as if that would be proof that they weren't telling the truth about what had happened, you know, information from their backgrounds that he thought that he could use to smear them. Mm -hmm. And by his side were some of these prominent feminist attorneys. Uh, And that was one of the many things that had happened off the record um, Mm -hmm. in the course of our investigation that we worked to bring on to the record so that readers could be there with us when we're kind of going toe-to-toe with him the day before the story runs and, and getting glimpses of these, you know, so-called feminist attorneys who were willing to uh, kind of smear on his behalf. That was a really, like, just as an aside, I found that utterly jaw-dropping when I, I, I think I listened to a, um, a New York Times podcast where you, um, it was an interview with you both, and I'm just, I mean, Gloria Allred has such a reputation, such a legacy of protecting women's rights and that just, I mean, it 
completely is at odds with it. There's a there's a smart writer named Sarah Weinman who read our book and tweeted about it. And she said something that's really stayed with me because sometimes other people see your work and your book in a way that, that doesn't even occur to you. Mm. And she said, you know, this book is about the public face and the private face of women and what choices people made when they faced Weinstein's behavior or rumors of that behavior. And I think it defies some of the conventional wisdom, you know, and scrambles some of our sort of stereotypes of how some of these people behave. Because, you know, as Megan mentioned, Gwyneth Paltrow was a huge help to our investigation. And she, I don't think, is generally thought of as, you know, sort of like an activist or, you know, a sort of uh, civil rights, you know, champion type. She's thought much more as a, you know, glamorous figure, you know, beauty entrepreneur. You know, there's been some controversy about the products she sells um, on her website. But she, you know, in our investigation, she showed a tremendous amount of concern uh, for other women. And then, yeah, you have these, you know, the Lisa Blooms and also Linda Fairstein. Uh, that may, name may not mean a lot here in London, but she was like, when Megan and I grew up, she was the pioneering sex crimes prosecutor who spoke up for women. That was her public image. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that she also crossed lines to work for Harvey Weinstein, it was really shocking. Mm -hmm. You know, and also the, the deep throat of the Weinstein investigation was a man. Yeah. An, an unassuming 50-something-year-old man named Erwin Ryder who had been Harvey Weinstein's corporate accountant for 30 years. I thought, you know, this is a middle-aged man who's a gruff loyalist. But in fact, he turned out to be deeply concerned about what was happening. He had he had gone through a period of inaction, and then he had tried to intervene in the behavior, and he had failed, which is why he wanted to help us. And just circling back to Gwyneth Paltrow as well, I mean, just on the topic of intimidation tactics, th there's a section in the book where um, Weinstein had shown up at the home of, of Gwyneth Paltrow in the Hamptons and was essentially standing in her living room and I think she was hiding in the upstairs bathroom. Do you think he was trying to send a kind of I'm watching you message to her or and to you as well? Or? Yes. He, Harvey Weinstein was incredibly paranoid about whether Gwyneth Paltrow was speaking to us, and we have a better understanding now of why we think that is. But at the time, basically, he asked to be invited to a party she was throwing at her house. And then she came to us and said, you know, what do I do? And one precept of journalism is that you try not to influence your sources' decisions. You know, it's for us to record the action, not to get in the middle of it. So I couldn't give her a clear answer, but we talked it through. And what she decided was, I'm going to let him come to the party because otherwise he's going to get suspicious that I am talking to you. So on the day of the party, I discovered a, a stack of panic texts and calls from her on my phone because he had showed up early and that's why she was hiding in the bathroom upstairs. And her fear was that he was trying to corner her and confront her. You know, are you talking to the New York Times? Are you ever going to tell this story? And actually, over the course of the investigation, he, he became increasingly worried about whether she was speaking with us to the point where, you know, in the book, we take readers through the final showdowns with 
with Weinstein and this very tense period right before publication. And part of what was going on is that Weinstein kept trying to interrogate us about, are you talking to Gwyneth Paltrow? Is she in the story? Is she in the story? At that point, Gwyneth was still totally off the record. Mm. We hadn't said a word about her to Harvey. We had told him she wasn't in the story. We had gone to him for response on all of these other allegations like Laura Madden's. And instead of addressing those, he was still talking about Gwyneth, which made no sense. Now, what happened after we broke the story is that in our reporting and in other victims' accounts, what we and Gwyneth learned is that apparently Harvey Weinstein had used her name pretty often in the course of trying to coerce other women. He had said things to them, according to these women, uh, like, everybody does it. How do you think Gwyneth Paltrow got her Oscar? You know, don't you want what she has, et cetera, et cetera. Now, first of all, remember that Gwyneth Paltrow, she does have a story of sexual harassment uh, from Harvey Weinstein, mm -hmm. but she never succumbed to him. She never slept with him. So the idea that he was saying that was A, wrong. And second of all, it was devastating to her because it was like he had taken her name and used it in the course of manipulating other women. And, you know, I think it's a real story about the way women can sort of be used against one another. And also when you look at, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people envy Gwyneth, you know, that sort of fame and wealth and, you know, seemingly perfect, carefree life. But it was almost like he drew on that to get other people to do what he wanted. Um, the more that he came at us with his, you know, legal threats and his bullying behavior um, and his attempts at intimidation. I mean, he would try to reach out to the publisher of the New York Times. He would try to reach out to the executive editor of the New York Times saying, like, let's just have, you know, important man to important man conversation here. And just uh, and, and they would just, you know, to their credit, would just kept steering him back to us, the mm -hmm. reporters, saying, deal with the reporters, deal with the reporters. And this story really became an x-ray into abuse of power, you know, how powerful people are able to kind of harness all of their resources. And honestly, there, I mean, there was a whole machinery in place here to silence women um, and allow Weinstein to evade scrutiny. And the more that that came into focus for us, just the more motivated we felt to expose it. And, you know, there were times where we were kind of getting more and more glimpses of what Weinstein and his enablers were made of. And it, and it just was sort of more motivation for us to show him what we were made of and what the New York Times stood for and what, you know, all of our brave sources stood for. And in the aftermath of the publication of your investigation, you continued reporting on Weinstein, but something else started happening. Millions of people around the world started sharing their experiences of sexual violence. How did it feel to witness the Me Too movement unfolding in the wake of your investigation? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Astonishing. You know, the Me Too movement was founded by Toronto Burke years before, and we're not activists. You know, we, we, we always want stories to have impact, but we don't seek a particular outcome. And as we discussed a few minutes ago, we, we weren't sure what kind of impact the story would have. As, as one of our editors pointed out many times in the course of the investigation, Harvey Weinstein wasn't that famous. And he wasn't saying that to poo-poo our story. He was saying it to, to strengthen it, to say, you have to show people, you know, why to care about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first indications um, were actually before publication of Variety and The Hollywood Reporter, kind of Hollywood trade publications, mm-hmm. had found out about our story. It may have been a Weinstein leak. We don't know. Uh, and they ran this story saying, oh, you know, the New York Times is about to publish a big Harvey Weinstein investigation. And that's when we first started hearing from women we hadn't contacted ourselves. And I mean, all summer, really for six months, Megan and I had been trying so hard to reach women, trying so hard mm-hmm. to get them to talk. And the idea that they were now coming to us, it, it was it was extraordinary. And then it only continued. Uh, oh, and by the way, we couldn't even get those women into the first story because the process of sort of checking and corroboration and, you know, making sure everything is airtight, it takes a while. And, and you know, we said, okay, these women have to wait for the second story. Um, so then as soon as the second story was published, we began hearing from women who um, had Weinstein stories, but also women who had stories uh, about other men. And the torrent has really continued to this day. We're still getting tips mm. all the time. And, you know, the response we saw was, it was staggering. I, I mean, I think Megan and I really just feel like everybody else on this count, which is the display of sort of mass accountability with the firing or resignation of all of these men. Mm. Um, the feeling that this was truly global with, you know, protests and hard conversations all over the world. This feeling that, you know, journalism and readers were so linked because we had done the investigative reporting and we had evidence in the Weinstein case, but then women all over the world stood up and said, actually, I can confirm that in a different way because the same thing happened to me in a completely different context. I have my own version. That feeling of being able to suddenly see patterns that we had never seen, it was just beyond anything we'd ever dreamed. And to be honest, we found it hard to sort of grasp 
the scope of it because this started out with us just doing our jobs. And where do you think the Me Too movement needs to go next? Well, you know, one of the things that we do in our book, we don't stop with the moment that we publish the Weinstein investigation. We report into the year that followed as the Me Too movement took off in earnest. And honestly, as things got more kind of complicated and confusing, um, there was this unprecedented flood of victims coming forward and going public with their stories. But there was also, at least in the United States, um, a backlash that emerged of people like of sort of male grievance and people saying that the Me Too movement had gone too far. And we realized that actually we think it really comes down to kind of three pressing but unanswered questions. Um, you know, there is still not agreement on the scope of behaviors that are under scrutiny. Are we just talking about sort of the most severe allegations of rape and sexual harassment? Are we talking about more nuanced interactions, uncomfortable interactions like, you know, the kind of uncomfortable uh, hand on a back, um, you know, sort of supervisor's hand on a back of a young female employee in the workplace or, you know, bra snapping in the hallways of high schools. Um, and how far back are we going? Are we talking about allegations that date back to the 80s or before? Uh, and, and the second question is, what is the process for vetting these allegations? I mean, we walk readers through the very specific process that we have as investigators journalists uh, for publishing these allegations, um, corroboration, other types of due diligence, making sure we seek comment from the person who's been accused, that type of due diligence. But, you know, HR departments and more broadly, I think public opinion, there's not consensus on how to vet these types of allegations and determine what's actually happened. And then the third question is uh, accountability. I mean, it's very easy for people to insist on accountability in these Me Too cases. It's another thing to assign it. Um, and it becomes much more complicated when it comes time to assign accountability. Oftentimes, these questions get scrambled. Uh, people are getting ousted from their positions of power before it's been determined exactly what happened um, in the first place. And so, you know, we think that moving forward, society is going to have to kind of grapple with and hopefully reach consensus on these questions. You know, that's not our job as journalists. We can't necessarily answer those questions. We can't, uh, you know, we don't lobby for, you know, legal reforms. We don't, you'll never see us marching in the streets um, or playing an activist role in any way. I think as reporters, we really feel like our job is to help expose the, you know, to continue to unearth the facts and the secrets that have remained hidden for so long, because, you know, what's certain is that you can't solve a problem that you can't see. Thank you both so much. Thank you so much for having us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. If you liked this episode of History Becomes Her, please subscribe, rate and review. If you have suggestions of history-making women we should feature on our podcast, or you simply want to get in touch, find us on Twitter at HBHpod. And you can find me on Twitter at RVT9. History Becomes Her is a mashable podcast created by Rachel Thompson and Maria Demenzi. Our artwork is by Vicky Lita. Our music was produced by Christiane Straker. Special thanks to Shannon Canellan and Nikolai Nikolov. And why not check out our sister podcast, Fiction Predictions? Thank you so much for listening.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.